Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 9th, 2018. This is episode 2142 of the Survival Podcast, 2142. And it is called 21 Unique Things I Will Be Growing This Year. After a hiatus from annual production, did some here and there, but I mean, not really heavily like I did, you know, back in the day when I started the show. I went into perennials really heavily and focused on that on my property for a few years and working with the ducks, and the ducks eat everything, so uh, there's only small garden areas I could do. I am going to be ramping up annual and semi-annual and perennial annual-ish production, I guess you'd say. All that will make sense when we get into it uh, this year. But I decided to, to talk to you about 21 things I plan to grow this year what they are and why I plan to grow them. Some things we've talked about before, some I guarantee you probably have never heard before. I'll bet... I'll bet with 150,000 downloads a day, there will be less than a dozen people in this audience that will say at the end of this episode, I had heard of every single one of these plants as far as growing it for food. I, I, I think some, like, I don't think there'll be anybody who'll be like, I didn't know any of them, right? I think there'll be plenty of people who say, I knew 10, 12, even 15 of them. But I guarantee you, almost all of you are going to learn about something today you never heard about before. And that is one of my goals on this show, to bring you new information that you can use in your walk toward preparedness. And feeding ourselves, folks, is one of the best things in the world we can do to increase our preparedness, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and individual liberty. So we'll get to these 21 things in just a bit. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Yeah, you know you can get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey Guy over at his website at directive21.com. But did you know you can get a lot of other really great stuff for your preparedness needs? Yeah, Jeff's got a lot of really cool stuff for your long-term preparedness and your self-sufficiency walk. He also is the number one dealer for Berkey water filtration systems in the country. Number one. There's a reason. Because he works his ass off. That's why. And because he does so much volume with Berkey, he has some of the best deals you can get on Berkey products. If you do not have a Berkey in your home, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I am going to say you really should consider adding one. We just had a boil water advisory about a mile away from my house. Now, it didn't affect me because I'm on a well, but the city water for the little town of Lakeside, just a bit away from me, uh, I saw it all on, go down on next door. People freaking out for two or three days and had to boil their water, and it's not safe, and now it is, and is it really? And, well, they said it's okay, but you should still probably boil it for another day, and I know that kind of crap. Again, I want to point out something. When you get a notice that says, hey, uh, we recommend you boil your water for the next two days, week, whatever it is, The problem was there before the notice came. It's almost never the case that they're like, oh, gee, there's a problem, and they get that notice out immediately, and did you hear it? So the only way you can know that the water you're drinking is always safe is to take responsibility for your own water filtration. The best way I know to do that on cost per gallon over time is a Berkey water filtration system, and I wouldn't buy a Berkey from anybody but the original the one and only Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. Next up today, we have Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The guys that have been with us, we've been on, we've been on the air about nine and a half years now. They've been with us about nine of them. 
nine. They have an amazing discount program that costs $29 a year. You can get it for life for free as an MSB member. That's the kind of supporter that they have been since day one. Vikram Tala put together an amazing company. They've got an amazing lineup of self-sufficiency, self-reliance items over at Safe Castle Royal. They're kind of like the Walmart of self-sufficiency in a way. You should check them out because they've got it all. SafeCastle.com. Remember, if you're an MSB member, check your benefits section and get that free lifetime discount membership to almost everything that Safe Castle Royal sells. And with that, let's take a look at the year in history for this episode. We're up to the year 88, Revenge and a Revolt. Contributed by David Verne. At the beginning of a campaign season, Julianus leads the Roman army across the Danube into Dacia. The Romans push deep into Dacia and meet the Dacian army at the Pass of Tape, the site of the defeat two years ago. To inspire his men, Julianus orders his soldiers to paint their name and their centurion's name on their shield in order to more easily identify legionnaires who distinguish themselves in combat. This incentive must have worked because the Romans smashed the Dacians, and to Caballus, the Dacian king begins to build barricades across the road leading to his capital. I'm going to mess this one. Sumizagesteria, Sumizagestusa, Sumizagestusa. Dacian armies begin falling back to defend the capital, which is Samajetestusta, okay? And the Romans set up camp for the winter and prepare to besiege the capital in spring. The Romans were victorious, but were delayed by problems on other fronts. During the winter of 88 and 89, the governor of the Upper Rhine, Semitunius, has launched a revolt with his two legions. He has paid the Chatti, the German tribe who Domitian had attacked to help him in the rebellion, which took place in the winter so the Chatti could cross the frozen Rhine. Domitian orders all loyal legions to march on the rebels and crush the rebellion. A unheard of January thaw melted the Rhine and cut Semitonius off from his German allies, and the governor of the lower Rhine, Lucius Maximus, is able to crush the revolt and execute Semitonius. News of the revolt quickly spread across the northern frontier, and many tribes took advantage of the distraction to raid Roman territory. My take by David Verne. Modern historians know little about the details of the revolt, because the first thing Maximus did after crushing it was to burn all of the simultaneous correspondence. This was to prevent a bloody purge after the revolt, and many people probably owed their lives to Maximus for this act. Domitian, however, became suspicious of this and grew increasingly cautious and paranoid. You know, I want to say, if you're a Roman emperor and you think people are out to get you and want to kill you, are you actually paranoid or are you simply responding to reality? Just saying. Whether good or bad or indifferent, it seems like somebody always wanted every emperor dead and was always looking for a way to pull it off. So I don't know if that's paranoid or just in tune with reality. It's also interesting, like, an unheard of thaw in January melted the Rhine. You want to bet if that happened today, they'd be, it's, it's global warming. And I, I don't think there was a lot of global warming from CO2 in the year 88 AD. I just got to spitball that one out there. Um, you also see what always happens with empires is it pushes its limits. Even though it overall worked out well for them, all of a sudden you got all these tribes raiding Roman territory, taking what they can and running away. This is how you defeat large armies, small raiding parties, and you haul ass. Right, that's And that's what starts happening because of this. And then the concept that 
Maximus burned the communications to prevent a purge in the revolt. Why do you think he would do that? Probably trying to keep a lid on things and realizing one of the things the Romans did right, if you want to, when I say right, I don't mean it was the good thing to do. I mean it was from the standpoint of effectiveness. The Romans were very astute when it came to not overplaying the violence in lands they occupied so that the people they were trying to control and basically tax farm, because right, that's what you are, you're livestock to govern, they farm you as a taxable entity, would, you know, overall submit and not cause trouble. And, you know, there's nothing like a bloody purge to kind of piss people off. When somebody, like, slaughters your brother, you know, in the streets with a sword, you kind of get angry. And it would seem like... Powers today might learn from that, but we, we just don't seem to. History isn't always repeating itself, but it does always seem to rhyme, does it not? All right, with that, let me remind you real quick, you can help support the show by joining the Members Support Brigade. And I want to make an apology and tell you I'm willing to do an exception, which I never do on sales. I ran the sale. It was $30 bucks a year for life, or as long as you maintained your account. Last night I was riddled with emails uh, toward the late part of the evening saying, the code's not working, it's supposed to work till midnight. My server that I run the membership site on is in London. I have a server in London and a sudden server in Salt Lake City with redundancy backups between them, right? Two is one and one is none. And, you know, nothing like, you know, an ocean to separate two servers to keep your redundancy up. I think what happened is even though the site settings are set for Central Standard Time, it based the decision to kill the discount on London time, and it killed it early. So if you got screwed, if you really did try to join yesterday and you had a problem, email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, tell me about it, and I'll square you away. Please, this is on your honor. I went on a whole soliloquy about not extending sales and stuff like that, and I'm actually meaning what they say, but if I screw up, I want to be responsible and I want to fix it. All right, so let's get into the uh, the fun stuff now, right? The uh, the main topic of today's show, which is 21 things that I'm going to grow this year. That's like blackjack, 21. I decided that was a good number because I got a lot more. And I want to say something out the gate, like I'm going to be growing lettuce and a bunch of other stuff, tomatoes and stuff that are not in this list. This is not all the things I'm going to grow this year. This is 21 unique and different things that maybe, you know, you wouldn't think of or maybe you, like some of these things are thinking like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I used to grow that all the time. And then when I moved here, I kind of stopped doing it and stuff like that. So it's the unique, unusual things in most instances or at least maybe a way of doing it that you hadn't thought of or a reason for doing it that you haven't thought about before. So. I want to talk about kind of like when I'm deciding what to grow, my main rules that I've always followed, and these are not in order, and you don't have to have them all. In fact, you don't even have to have one of them. Like, just because I effing want to is good enough reason to grow anything that you want to. But here's some things I always try to tell people when they're trying to figure out what to grow within the space that they have. First of all, grow what you like to eat. There's no sense of growing something that you, know, you can grow radishes in 25 days or so if it's if it's right at that right part of the year where it's cool enough but also warm enough, you know, and be picking them in 25 days. If you hate radishes, don't grow radishes. So start out with what you like to eat. Grow what's expensive to buy. I mean, some of the stuff in the stores in the time of season where you would be harvesting it is even for organic is stupid cheap. Now, if you have the room, the space, the time, whatever, to grow everything, just do it. But if you're making a decision, look at how expensive is this. Grow what you can't buy or something that's hard to find or you got to go to a special store for. 
Like one of the things I'm going to grow this year is bitter melon. Well, you can get it at at, at world what is it uh, Central Market, but I don't go down there very often. It's not at the stores that I shop at. Just as one example, um, grow things that store well with little to no effort. I'm not going to mention butternut squash today in the list, so I'll use it as an example. But you know, butternut squash will store for six months or more with doing nothing. You just set it on a shelf. So if you can store something really, if it dehydrates well. Uh, if it freezes easily, if anything you can store either with little work or almost no effort whatsoever, you know, I store sweet potatoes in the dirt that they grew in. I just leave them in there and pull them out as I need them through the winter would be another example. Um, grow things that are perennial or that self-seed. You'll hear about some stuff today that's perennial and some stuff that self-reseeds. Then once you get it going, it just kind of comes back on its own. Grow things, things with more than one use. You'll hear about some of those today. Like, what can you do with it? Like, if it produces two different edible products, or does it do something like improve soil fertility and produce an edible product? Or is it a product that produces an edible product that also provides a landscaping beautiful component and attracts things like hummingbirds and pollinating insects? Does such a thing exist? Yeah, you'll hear about it today. Um, grow things that have little disease or pest pressure. Basically, things that don't get sick, that don't get tore up by insects. Like if you if you're making a choice between two things, and one you really like, and one you like a, a, enough, but one is always getting tore up with pest pressure, and the other one really doesn't or disease. Grow the one that's tougher. Grow the one that has less problems. If you have to make a decision between them, grow honey badger plants. Right? Everybody's seen the video. Video. Honey badger don't give a shit. If you if you've never seen this video, it's hysterical. Just go to Google and type in "honey badger don't give a shit" and you'll find the video. But there are plants that are not only like resistant to disease and pests; they just don't care. They handle drought. They handle moisture. They handle heat. They handle cool. They just don't care. They they die to the ground when it gets to a certain place, and then the root stays alive. And then when the conditions aren't, they just come back. Like, that's a honey badger plant. And if you can find some that meet any of the other criteria, like you like to eat it, then, you know, it's a good thing to think about growing. Grow things that allow you to interplant in layers. So can you get more into the same space because you find something that's more of a ground cover, more of a tall plant, and plant them together, right? Basic permaculture gilding, but actually thinking about that. like, And when you find something that works like that, that's productive, that's like a ground cover, And doesn't interfere with your tall plants. Plant it or something like it everywhere you have tall plants. Why wouldn't you? You know? Um, try a few new or weird things each year. If you're a gardener, I think just every year you should buy some shit. You, you never heard of it before. You're not sure about it. You don't know if you'll like You don't know. You see, you just throw it in the ground and see what happens. And grow things that are superfoods if you can. Things that are really good for you. And to me, the more of those, and it, you don't have to write them down or nothing, they're all in the show notes today. The more of those you can tick the box for. You know, if you got one thing that takes like three or four of those boxes, it's probably worth growing, or at least considering growing. Again, depending on your spatial limitations and stuff, you have to make a lot more consideration if you're going to start out square foot gardening this year with one four foot by four foot bed or one four foot by eight foot bed compared to if you're going to have, you know, five 50 square foot beds. Like, you have a lot more free. Are you going to interplant throughout your property? You're going to interplant throughout your landscaping and stuff like that. Then, you know, it all gets easier the more space that you have, right? So on, on deciding, you know, what to cut out because you have to cut less out. Um, let me tell you a little bit about why to grow more than just the usual suspects. You know, everybody, <laughs> tomatoes, peppers, 
cucumbers. Right? I mean, like everybody grows those things. And you're going to hear a lot of peppers today, but hopefully some peppers you haven't heard of or haven't considered before. But, but the reason to grow more than just the usual suspects is it's fun. You find things that adapt better to your region than you would otherwise. Again, we're back to some of my reasoning here. We're like, you can't get it in a store. Like, my first thing on the list today is Cubanelle peppers. They, they, they grew fantastic for me last year. I've never seen them in the store. I, I've, I'm not saying they don't exist in stores. I've never seen them in a store. So that, they, they, you know, when you go outside the usual suspects, you get things you otherwise wouldn't have. And, and it's how you find things that meet all those criteria. Is it disease-resistant? Well, it might say it's disease-resistant in Cadillac, but is it disease-resistant in North Carolina where you live, or Texas where I live, or Pennsylvania where somebody else lives? You don't know until you grow it. So I think by going outside the usual suspects, we start to expand our horizon and we create diversity and resiliency in our systems. And, you know... I wanted to kind of talk to you, like another thing, like why I'm going so all out this year is my new plant starting setup for this year. So I finally broke down and did it. I went out and I got the 600-watt Kingbow uh, grow light off of Amazon because I've been talking about this, and I want to let you guys know I got it. It'll be items. These will both be items of the day sooner or later. Um, but the 600-watt, the big badass one. Uh, and then I got the, the, the Grow Sun grow tent. It's a 5-foot-by-5-foot uh, grow tent. And, uh, man, it's, I've just got a few things in there right now started, but it is just the best response I've got to starting seeds early ever. And, and I'm kind of stoked about it. So I'll have links to both of those in the show notes today if you want to kind of emulate that because uh, I know a lot of you have bought the uh, the 45-watt Kingbow lights that are a lot. They're like 30 bucks. You know, this thing's like 100-something bucks, uh, this 600-watt this light. But, man, the difference is night and day. Uh, those 45-watt lights, if you get them down close to the plants, they're still great. I'm using them inside the tent, underneath the table that the main plants are sitting on. I mean, that's so I still love them. I'm just saying, like, it's amazing what happens when you step up in the quality of your gear. Um, so, so there you go. So let's think, talk about the things I want to plant this year and why. Number one, Cubanelle peppers. Now, this isn't a new one for me. I grew four Cubanelle pepper plants last year. And uh, I, I made an attempt to save them during the frost this year, and it just didn't work. I, I think I lost all the peppers. Peppers are actually perennial, and if you dig them up and bring them inside, you can actually overwinter them. But I, I don't think they made it with as crazy cold as it got and as, uh, the limited effectiveness of the greenhouse that I had them in. Uh, but Cubanelle peppers, I grew them in my aviary in one of my wicking beds. The plants grew five feet freaking tall. There were peppers everywhere. They grew up through the hardware mesh out of the aviary, had peppers on top of the aviary. They, they, they just were, they tasted great. And what they kind of look like is uh, almost like a chili pepper, but they're a sweet pepper. And they have, if you've ever had like a sweet banana pepper that has kind of like, they have a sweet pepper taste, but then they have kind of this, I don't know, kind of lending toward a, a sour bitterness, but not a lot. Like that type of thing. They've got kind of that mix of that in there. No heat whatsoever. Um, they come on a light green color. And then they turn kind of a bright green color. And then they turn a beautiful orange blush. And then they go to a total red. And they're good all the way through that. They're a great slicing pepper. They look amazing on stir fries. Because they're a long pepper. You just cut the top off, pull the seeds out, and slice them in rings. Especially when they're red, man, they just look awesome in the stir-fry presentation. And again, they just grew. They grew, and they grew, and they produced, and they produced, and they produced. 
And they did better than any other pepper that I grew last year, including jalapenos and things like that. Um, so I just I can't see not growing them again. And they are generally available in garden stores as started plants if you don't want to buy your own seeds. By the way, I have a link to a seed supply for everything on the list today. Some are some of our partners in the MSB. A lot of it's Baker Creek because they have at rareseeds.com because they have a lot of things nobody else does. I've reached out again to Jerry Gettle, who's the owner there, about possibly doing a discount for you guys. They just they talk up when I ever talk to them about it, they kind of oh yeah man, be me, and then they just blah, they fall off right. Like I don't know if we're not important enough or whatever, but like we don't have a right to a discount from any company right. So uh, they do good work, so they get a lot of links because uh, again they have stuff nobody else does. Any seed gets quite a few links. Victory Seed has been a very loyal support of us. They get some links of the stuff they have. Uh, but a lot of this is like outside that realm altogether because I just want you to know where you can get it and take a look at it. So Cubanel peppers, again, there's a link there. The next one is an example of like having to go completely off the reservation. I don't know a single seed house, you know, like a Baker Creek, a Victory, uh, Seed Savers Exchange, any, anybody. I have not burpee, you name it, right? Territorial, um, uh, Underwood Gardens, no, none of these people have high mowing, Peaceful Valley. I've not been able to find them anywhere. Detal peppers. Detal peppers are the heat almost of a habanero. Not quite, but they're hot. They have a very fruity thing going on, though, and uh, a real sweetness. And they make incredible, like, pepper pastes and sauces and fermented things, especially if you cut that heat with things like carrot and stuff to, to mellow it down or even bring in other sweet peppers with it to dilute it down. You don't need a lot of them because they're hot. They are a Florida original. No one's really exactly sure where they came from. No one's really exactly sure how they got to Florida. There's a whole bunch of mythology or mythology around it. But they damn near grow wild in like the St. Augustine area. Again, peppers being perennial, if they don't get a freeze, they, they just keep growing like a bush. Uh, so parts of Florida, you know, it doesn't freeze. Not every year anyway. And in those places, they're, you know, short-lived perennials. I found a guy that sells them on eBay. I have a link to his little blogspot site. He's been growing to Tal Peppers for 25 years. He sends you a couple packets of seeds, some instructions, some recipes, all kinds of cool stuff. And a towel pepper is something I really think you might want to look into if you're if you're a pepper head. And we're gonna we're gonna go right through all the peppers here first, and then we'll go to other stuff. Just so you know, we are front loaded with peppers. I learned about these initially from Chef Keith when he was living in Florida, and he did some stuff with the towel peppers. But this is one of those ones I think a lot of you, if you're not from Florida, you probably not definitely, but probably haven't heard of them. And it's a whole cottage industry, and there's a reason, because they're really good, but they, they are really hot. Very similar to Detal peppers, lemon drop pepper. These look almost like a Detal. Detals kind of look like if you took a habanero and straightened it out a little bit and shrunk it down to make it kind of like a wrinkly Tabasco. All right, I guess the best way I could describe it. There's certain habaneros that actually do have more of this shape. Instead of that kind of little mini bell shape, they have kind of a long tubular shape, and they're, they're still pretty small pepper. That's how the towels look. Lemon drops look a lot like that. They're a lot like a yellow detail, I guess is, is, is one way to look at it. Why am I growing those? I'll be honest. I couldn't find detail pepper seeds from a, tr a trusted source at first. 
and I was ordering some stuff from, I think, Baker Creek in this case. They had these lemon drop peppers. They looked a lot like the towel peppers, and so I went ahead and ordered them. I think they might make an interesting malang with the towel pepper for a hot pepper sauce or a hot pepper chutney or something like that. So that's just one that you can look at, especially if you are, if you're order, and the kind of why I concluded them. If you're ordering from seed catalogs and you're trying to keep your shipping down, you will be able to find these from several different sources where the detail you're going to have to go to a private individual to get them from what I've seen so far. Uh, on the same note, this is from the, the link I have is to uh, Baker, Baker Creek, rareseeds.com, for this pepper, habanada. What is a habanada? Habanada is a heatless, no heat at all, habanero. Intrigued? I am. Uh, I've grown a pepper called Zavery in the past. Zavery is supposed to be the first heat-free habanero from a company called Burp, Burpee, right? One of the most famous long-term seed houses in the country, uh, Atlee Burpee Company. I'm going to tell you something about the Zavery pepper from Burpee. It is not a habanero that's not hot. It is a mostly tasteless little red pepper that has a novelty use, and that novelty use is it looks like a burning hot bitch of a pepper. It really does, and uh, you can put some on a plate and dare people to eat it, and they won't, and you can pick them up and throw in your mouth like cherry tomatoes and, uh, and freak them out. That, that's, I mean, I tried it two different years in a row. I tried growing them from seeds. I tried growing, growing them from plant sorts from Burpee. It just, it is not even a good sweet pepper. In my opinion, they're not that prolific. They don't taste, have much flavor to them. Uh, it just sucks. So I'm going to give these habanadas a chance. A habanada is um, also a, a product from, again, uh, Baker Creek. And these were you know, selectively bred to be a heat-free habanero. And if you look at them... They're a little more tapered and pointed than your typical habanero, but they look like a habanero. They don't just look like a hot pepper. They look like a habanero, and they have that beautiful orange color. Um, these were bred by a guy named Michael Mazurik, and it's a product of natural breeding techniques. And it has, you know, suppose I haven't tried it yet, but and, and the reviews I've read seem to bear this out. It has the floral fruitiness that makes habanero so awesome. And yet, it's not hot at all. Even the seeds aren't hot. Uh, and this is making like a big hit on the culinary scene, apparently. So you might wonder why I'm growing that. One, I, the idea of a heat-free habanero that actually has that habanero quality to it seems great. But I always love that. And that's why I'm growing these lemon drop peppers and detail peppers. And my, my thought is, what if we can take and make something, you know, like a sauce that is got that habanero quality and we, we, we use these to cut into these more hot peppers. Or even do that with something like a jalapeno or a serrano or something so that we get that habanero quality without that crazy ass blow your brains out of the backside of your head habanero level of heat. And, you know, I did enjoy playing with people's minds with the, uh, with the savory, uh, peppers. So these ones, I mean, seriously, man, I mean, if you put them on a plate with, some orange habaneros, and you didn't know which ones to look for, and then you were screwing around, you could make a bad mistake. So I think these are going to be a really 
Um, awesome addition to the garden and something you might really want to consider. I got another pepper, um, and don't worry, we got... We got one more pepper, and we're, we're coming off of that train. Uh, but this one is also from Baker Creek. It's a new pepper for them this year. I've never seen these anywhere before. It's called Corbasi, C-O-R-B-A-C-I. These look like peppers that blow your brains out with heat. They kind of look like what's called a cow horn pepper, um, except they're a bit longer. They're a very long, thin uh, pepper. I mean, like, you're, you're talking... Uh, eight inches long, some of them, but about as big around as maybe the biggest part, about as big around as your index finger, and, and a lot of small. And they come in like all colors: green, orange, red, like a light, you know, yellow. Uh, they all off the same plant, and and they they ripen to red eventually. They're originally from Turkey. It's a Turkish variety, and it, apparently in Turkey they are really popular for pickling and frying. These, I'm just the color. The, the fact of being, you know, chopping them up and using them in stir fries. And I think that these will be a pepper that if they're as prolific as they say they are, which is supposedly like ridiculous, like you can't keep up with them, they'll be, because peppers you can freeze for frying without blanching. And remember I said, can I, can I store it with little to no effort? Well, just chopping these up and getting all that color, because you've got such a small amount of seed in a pepper of this style. You don't even worry about this. Just chop, 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 chop into the bag and freeze. Um, being able through your winter when you're doing stir fry stuff to just grab you know that multicolored kind of pepper melang with all that sweetness and drop it into a stir fry or a soup or something just seems really cool. And again, they just look cool. And and I you know I, I I want things to be productive. And if they're not productive, they're not useful to me. But I also want them to look nice. And this seems like a really great pepper for kind of edible landscaping, just from the way that the plant grows and the colors and everything. So let's get off of the peppers, and I'm going to bet that I've probably hit my promise to you so far, that most of you have given you at least one plant you didn't hear of before, whether it was a kibasi pepper or whether it was a lemon drop or the habanada or the natal, right? I'm going to bet that one of those hit almost every one of you guys. But the, the what I have for you next as we come off of peppers are two edible Asian gourds. And I bet most of you who are not of Asian descent, uh, maybe direct immigrants, will not know of either one of these, or unless you're into ethnic cuisines at a deep level. There are the hairy gourd and the white flowered gourd. And I will cover them together because I'm, I'm growing them. For, and it's more about why I'm growing them than what they do for some of these because I haven't tried them yet. But they're both very good in stir fries and things like that, reportedly. Um, when cooked young. So these are not something you grow to the full size. So you pick them young, a couple inches, four inches long, chop them up, put them in the stir fries. And they are both very much of a vining plant and supposed to be both very, very prolific. They're also supposed to be both almost completely disease-free and disease-resistant. And I grow a lot of cucumbers, but by midsummer we get enough of the uh, cucumber beetles with the mosaic virus I really kind of like I go from having cucumbers coming out of my ass to no cucumbers. And then that space the cucumbers were in is empty. I'm going to try to success these guys into that space this year and grow them elsewhere in case I'm able to find some cucumber varieties that are more resistant. Um, but kind of to take that space over in the summer, because of course, as a gourd, an Asian gourd, these grow best in the heat. So I'm going to be growing both of those. Now, here's the thing I, 
I heard about these through doing guys, I do so much research to find out things that, you know, I can bring to you that you didn't already know. And I found both of these through researching basically Asian culinary stuff that that is unknown or unusual. And I went all over trying to find seeds for them. I could find, you know, here and there. And I found one source, uh, an Asian dude out of Florida, I think is where he's based, uh, that sells seeds for both of them on eBay. And I have a link. And this is the vendor I bought mine from. It was a large amount of seeds for the price. And he did a great job. They were here within a week when I ordered them. Uh, good seller on eBay. So, again, hairy gourd and white-flowered gourd. Uh, these both kind of sort of look cucumber-ish, but they're not cucumbers. They're gourds. Uh, best eaten cooked and into stir-fries and soups and things like that. Next, another Asian uh, plant that many of you probably have heard of. This is going to be one that people either love or hate, I've, I've found. It's called bitter melon. Uh, it's grown a lot in the south of Japan. It is considered a superfood and a longevity food. Uh, the place where they're, they're, they consume more of these than any place in the world also has one of the longest-lived populations in the world with the lowest amounts of disease, though I'm not going to give it all to Bill or Melon because there's a lot about the way those people live in general and eat in general that supports that. But I remember the first time I had Bitter, bitter Melon. My, uh, my old business partner, Neil, from London, kept talking about this stuff, and I'll, I'm going to make some, mate, and bring it in. You'll try it. You'll probably hate it. It'll be, you know, it's a, it's some people like it. Some people don't. Well, he brought it in, and he did like a basic stir-fry with a little bit of like a, a soy thing going on with it. And it, it was it is bitter. It, it's it's a, a tr like not a little bit. There's a sharp bitterness to it. But I really like it. And it is another one of these plants that's extremely disease-resistant, very prolific, and something you don't just find every day in the store. So that might be one you want to check out. Next one, kind of dancing around cucumbers with no cucumbers on the list today, but dancing around and going there, um, is the uh, mouse melon. Now, I grew these in Arkansas. Some of you may remember the pictures I posted. It, 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 you take a picture with this thing, you feel like a giant with a, with a watermelon between your fingers. Uh, they look like a little striped watermelon. They grow about an inch long. The seeds are unbelievably tiny. They're a gherkin, so they're in the, the same family as cucumber. Um, They are very crunchy. Very, I mean, like you, like crunch, like the crunchiest vegetable I've ever eaten. They have a, a, a cucumber-like flavor, but they don't have a lot of flavor. But they pickle really well, and that gives them a flavor. They make a fantastic fermented pickle um, if you get enough of them, because it's a very small plant, tiny, tiny flowers. I mean, this thing is really cool. But I'll tell you what I like doing best with them. Because I was getting, you know, a handful every couple days off of a couple plants. Just throw them in salads. Just fret, not cut or anything. They're about the size of a big, uh, great cherry tomato. We just throw them in there. And when you get into that one, you get that crunch with it. Really, really awesome. Cool, different. Never seen them. I mean, Central Market, Whole Foods, uh you know, uh, what do you call it? farmer's markets? I have never seen these things for sale anywhere. And I like things that are unique like that. And they they didn't, you know, at the time of the, the season where I started to have problems with cucumber virus, mosaic virus and things like that, I, I didn't get any problems with these at all. It would happen in Arkansas, eventually the deer got to them and ate the whole damn plant. But, uh, but until that happened, they seemed to do pretty damn good. So again, mouse melon, uh, sometimes they're labeled as Mexican sour gherkins. But I don't think they're actually the same thing. I think they're very similar plants. 
So I have a link where you can actually see the exact plant that I'm talking about today. Next up today, Scarlet Runner Beans. The bean that is in the words of the founder of Permaculture, Bill Mollison, just about, this is a quote, just about the best damn bean in the world. Let me tell you about Scarlet Runner Beans for those that don't know. Many beans do something Scarlet Runners do, and that is they are a dual-purpose bean. We can pick it young, and we get a, a green bean-type bean. In this case, you get kind of a flat Italian-style bean, if you can think about an Italian-style bush bean, the flat ones. Um, but they get much bigger than that. And they get much bigger than that before they're too old to do an edible pod. But if we let them keep going, they get really big, and they get these gorgeous shiny, brown, mottled beans in them that make a fantastic dry bean if that's what you want to grow. So if, if that wasn't enough, if you grow scarlet runners in really good soil, they develop a tuber. That tuber's edible, but I suggest you don't eat it. If you I haven't successfully done this yet, and I've got plans to try to do it next year. If you mulch the shit out of that tuber they become perennial. As long as you don't let the ground freeze solid around them, they spring up and come back. And I've got one tuber out of one of my wicking beds in a bucket in the greenhouse, and we'll see if it comes back. But next year, I'm going to have enough of these planted in places. The problem was last year, I had too heavy of a shade cloth uh, over top of the aviary, and I'm changing that to 30% from 60% this year. And the ones I planted in there just didn't do well. In fact, they did better... It, they, and here's the thing. I know it works because it got so shady in there, they basically died. And I, they were looking sad, so I just cut them off at the ground and let other things that were doing better do well in there. When all of that stuff kind of faded out at the end of the year, all of a sudden they came back and they looked better than they did when they first came up from seed. So they did rejuvenate from tuber, but they didn't do it over winter for me yet. But I'm, I'm looking to do that. Now, I'm not done. So now i got a bean that works as a dry bean and a shell bean, and a bean that is perennial and will come back if we mulch the ground around it in many, especially zone six and above is supposedly where the like magic cutoff is. All right, how about this? Remember I was talking about attracting pollinators and hummingbirds? The flowers on this are these big, beautiful, trumpet-style red flowers. They almost look like a honeysuckle flower. Hummingbirds love them. The vines are huge. They'll grow nine feet or more long with these big, beautiful green leaves and these beautiful clusters of these red trumpet-shaped flowers with bees and hummingbirds all over them. So now you've got a, a, a scaffolding plant. You've got an ornamental plant. You've got a pollinator attractor. You've got a hummingbird attractor. You've got food, and you've got perennial. And let me tell you something. If the perennial thing doesn't work out, You let a few of them go to large size, you let the beans dry out, you save a handful of seeds, and you just throw them back in the ground in the spring next year. It's probably one of the easiest uh, beans in the world to self-propagate. It's not going to be doing a lot of cross-pollinating with other things. It's going to be going gangbusters when most of your other beans are kind of fizzling out for the year um, because it's going to get so much activity with hummingbirds, and it's a deep flower. It's going to get well-pollinated in its own air from its own plant, so you're going to have a great... Uh, repeatable result, and it's just something I think everybody should be growing if you want to grow beans at all in your system. On beans, though, I am going to try something I haven't grown before. I have grown what they call Asian long beans or Asian noodle beans in the past, the green ones. I'm going to grow basically red noodle beans this year. 
These things grow up to a yard long. They're a little bit smaller round than like my pinky finger, so probably a smaller person's pinky finger. So they're a long, thin bean. Uh, they can be grown and saved long enough to where you can get the, the little bean seeds out of them as a dry bean, but they're really more of a stir-fry vegetable. You know, you pick four or five of these things and you chop them up, and that's enough for a stir-fry for you and you know you and a spouse. You pick you know six, eight of them, and it's enough for you, your two kids, and your spouse into your stir-fry with other stuff. And and I've always found in my cooking that the more colors I use, the more appetizing the food tastes and appears. So by going to a red, because there's plenty of green stuff to go and surf. I go into a red, we add yet another depth of color. And my understanding is they taste about the same. But red noodle beans, I have a link to that. The next one is a plant that I grew extensively the last two years. I'm in love with it. If there's a plant that I'm in love with growing, it's it's the Japanese red or purple sweet potato, depending on who calls it what. Um, this sweet potato is a golden light golden white color flesh and it is a bright purple almost red skin and if you did want to peel it for whatever reason if you just simply washed it and scrubbed it hard with like a rough pad it will scrub the peel right off the peels that thin it is once you get your starts going you make you know you can, if you have your own potatoes you can make your own slips or you can buy plants And when I bought plants, when I, the first year I did it, I had to buy plants for it because uh, I didn't have any potatoes to make slips from. Um, they looked pretty sad when they got here. I put them in water, I put them in shade, and I, I rooted them further. And then I put them out into the ground, and they looked okay. It took about a week for them to really adapt. I kept a lot of shade on them because it was already pretty hot in the year. But once they took, they took off like nothing I have ever seen before in my life. And you could make as many more slips. Once you get a good, healthy vine, cut a piece off. It takes a couple days to start rooting. You stick it somewhere else, and it goes. And it goes, and it goes, and it goes. I had them in all my wicking beds growing up over the side, trailing down so that the quail and the bantam chickens could eat them, and it worked perfectly. As they got far enough to the ground where they could reach them, they ate them, and then they grew back. And then they ate them, and they get like a little chain going down there. The greens of all sweet potatoes are edible, but these are exceptional. They taste like spinach when you saute them. I don't eat the stems. They're a bit too um, woody for me, but we'd cut you know a couple big long vines off, pull the leaves off, throw them in a stir fry. They taste just like spinach. So remember I said about things doing more than one thing? I also said about being able to plant two things in the same area and have them not interfere with each other and actually help each other. This is a trailing ground Vine. Everywhere it touches, it roots, and it keeps going. So any tall plant, like a pepper or whatever, you can plant this tomatoes in in with it, and then at the end of the season, pull your tubers up. Or do what I do. Leave them in the ground and go pull them as you need them until the next spring. And a lot of times, you'll start having shoots show up, in, and they'll, they'll winter over. I've had them winter over twice for me now. Um, it's the most successful crop that I've grown outside of water spinach, which isn't on today's list. And once you have some, you just need to keep, keep a tuber or two. And next year, you set it in a little tray of water. It starts to form slips. You grow your slips out. You root your slips, and you replant it. And uh, honest to God, if you have good, healthy, viable uh, tubers, you can just throw one in the ground and keep it well watered, and it'll start growing, and you can pull slips out of the ground and just move them wherever you want them. It's, it, it is one of the most fantastic plants 
And I'm happy to say one of our supporters does offer, um, offer the plants for it. It's Victory Seeds, and you can get a 10% discount on all orders at Victory Seeds, and I have a link right to where those plants are. And not being a dumbass, I've already ordered mine from this year, because even though I'm going to be making my own, I generally order you know, 25 slips um, to share and to hedge my bet against something going wrong with my tubers. You, there's not a lot of people that sell the Japanese purple, and again, you got to be careful. There's, there's two different quote-unquote purple sweet potatoes. One, they're referring to the flesh is purple. And those are not what I'm talking about. I've never grown them. I have nothing bad to say about them, but they're not what I'm talking about. And the other are, they, they call them Osaka. They have a bunch of different names. So basically, it's a very thin purple to red skin potato with a white flesh that's of Asian descent. This is the one you want if you want what I'm talking about. It's what Victory Seed Company has. Um, they make one of the most fantastic French fries you could ever make. I, I like sweet potato fries, but I've never been able to really get them crunchy and pillowy and crispy. I make them fantastic, and they get better if you do what I'm about to say. But these sweet potatoes, cooked this way, if you do this once, you will grow them for the rest of your life. What you do is you cut big old steak fries out of them. Leave the skins on. There's no reason to peel the damn things. Take them and put them in about 350-degree oil. I like to use peanut oil for frying these things. But whatever oil you use for deep frying. And I like to use a wok because you use a little bit of like a quart of oil can do a lot of deep frying in a wok and keep getting reused. And so you put them in there and you fry them. And when they look almost done and they'll be soft and that typical thing that you get when you make your own sweet potato fries... Take them out. Use a strainer. Take them out. Put them on something to drain. Wait about 10 to 15 minutes for them to cool down and drain of that fat. And put them back in a second time. I know there's a chemical reason this happens. I'm sure there is. I don't know what it is. I don't even care. I don't care. I know cooking science. I really like cooking the science behind cooking and all. But there's sometimes like something works just so well, I'm just going to pretend it's magic even though I know better. That's what this does. They get this incredible crispy exterior, and the inside is like a pillow, like a buttered pillowed potato. It is unbelievable. If you can't tell, if all the stuff I'm going to talk about today, if you're only going to add one to your garden, Japanese purple sweet potatoes would be the one that I would really recommend. The next one, another thing out of Asia, Daikon radish. Now, that's one that I bet most of you have heard of, used as cover crops and things like that. I'm going to tell you that I'm not a massive fan of daikon radish. I've done some fermented, and it's pretty good. I've done slivers of daikon fermented with Jerusalem artichokes in a, in a lacto-fermentation. And that made the, the Jerusalem artichokes even better. And by the way, if you ferment the artichokes, you don't fart your brains out after you eat them. I'm just saying. But I had a happy accident occur when I was using daikon as a cover crop. And that was, you let them go until they go to seed. Well, when they go to seed, first of all, they put these little white flowers on, and there's bees and insects all over them. It's like, great, okay, cool, that's, that's good. But also you start seeing all these little seed pods on them. And they look like a little green bean, a little tapered green bean, about an inch and a half long, and you know not very big around, about as big around as like a number two pencil. So... I'm one of these people, like, I will try anything unless I think it's going to make me sick or hurt me. And sometimes I'll even give it a little try and see if that's where it's going or not. 
So one day I'm out and I take one of these seed pods and I, 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 I kind of open it up and see the seeds like develop but not hard in it yet and all. I smell it and that's this really light radish aroma. I'm like, I wonder. So I popped it in my mouth and I ate it. And then I ate like four more without mashing them up first. Like, these are really good. So I started putting them into salads. And again, I'm not a guy that likes, I don't grow, if you, you'll notice you're, you won't hear cherry bell radish or French radish or breakfast radish on any of my lists. I'm not a radish guy. This has such a mild radish flavor. More like when you grow like microgreens. So then I'm like, I'm looking at these things going, this would have to stir fry up nice. So I took a handful in the house before I put it in anything else just to kind of taste it by itself. I just got some hot oil in a, in a, in a pan and just give them a quick stir fry until they turn bright green. Holy crap. I'll grow daikon for what it does as a cover crop, for what it does as a root crop into the soil for what it does to bring insects in, and I don't even care if I eat the root. Those seed pods are freaking gold. They, they belong on gourmet menus. They're that awesome. And when you get one or two big daikon plants up and go in the seed, you get an ass load of them. Now, I've never tried storing them. I don't think they would store well. However, probably blanched and frozen, they'd probably be just fine for your stir-fries. And I'm like, imagine they're going to get soft. What makes these things really good is when you just give them, like if I was doing a stir-fry, like when you're down to like only two minutes left, with about the time you would throw zucchini in it, that's when you would throw these in. So they get that bright green, kind of like you're cooking like a sugar snow pea, and you don't want to overcook it to get mushy. They're fantastic. We should be growing daikon for other reasons, but for that alone, especially if it's a long season where they'll go to seed, awesome. By the way, once you get them going to seed, if you have the kind of property where they can, you know, you know, get out and find their niches, they become very much perennial or self-reseeding annual, a better term for them. So remember, I like that too. Next up, tomatillos. You notice I don't have any tomatoes on the list. I'll grow some tomatoes. I grow them every year, but I deal with down here, tomato blight. I just, ugh. And it annoys me because where I lived in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, you could literally like throw a tomato on the ground, stick a stick in next to it, and come back in a couple weeks and start tying your tomato plant to the stick. Whichever one grew the best, you just pull the other. I mean, it was that easy to grow a tomato. I, it, it's, when I started growing tomatoes down here, they look really great at the beginning of the year, and then you get a little bit of brown on the lower limbs, and you're like, eh, whatever, and you print it off, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's just like coming up like a cancer, killing your beautiful tomato plant. What the hell is this nonsense, you know? Yeah, I, even being a lifelong gardener as a kid with my grandfather, I'd never even heard of tomato blight until we moved here. But uh, remember what I said, grow, what, what grows easily? Tomatillos. They don't get blight. They do a lot of the same things tomatoes do. They make good salsas. They make good sauces. They're good in Tex-Mex cooking. They go really well with cilantro and jalapenos and other hot peppers. So grow what grows easy. And of all the tomatillos I've tried, I've tried the purple ones that are sweeter and all. Good old-fashioned tomatillo verde. Just the, the, the general tomatillos that everybody grows, those are the best ones. And I grow them because they grow. And they vine. I grew them in Arlington in the garden beds I had there, and I had to take a machete. And I had to chop them down with a machete because they grew from one bed across to the other bed, and I couldn't get between the beds anymore. I mean, that's that's what you want. You want weed-like veracity in your plants if you can if you can get it. Okay, good stuff, Hob, huh? but, uh, but Jack's kind of gone off of this unusual thing that you've never heard of for a while. I got one. I bet there's maybe a handful of you out there that have heard of this. Somebody, I think, handed me some seeds to one of these a long time ago, and I never grew them. I gave them to somebody else. Um, but it just seems familiar to me. But I found them this year at Baker Creek. 
and it's called Achocha. A-C-H-O-C-H-A. Again, all this stuff is in the show notes with links, so you can go to today's show and, uh, and, and get links and find it. But Achocha is an unknown cucumber relative. It's hugely prolific. It grows as a vine crop like cucumber. It provides shade, a windbreak, and it just is exposably covered with these little gourd-like fruits that are about two inches long. Like, just gazillions of them. And they actually taste more like a pepper than a cucumber or a gourd. And they're supposed to be fantastic stuffed. And, I, I, I mean, I just, I don't know how well they'll do. But they are uh, grown heavily in Peru and South America. There's been uh, medical studies done showing they can lower cholesterol levels. And they're recommended for gastrointestinal disorders. Now, one of the things I like about that is there's a lot of people that have gastrointestinal distress when they eat peppers. And here's something that can stand in for a, a sweet pepper that actually helps with that rather than causes it. So I think that would be interesting, too. But this is what, you know, I said, you know, grow one or two things every year that you just don't know and just looks weird and different and new. That's the one for me. Again, it's called Achocha, A-C-H-O-C-H-A. Uh, and I have a link where you can find them over at Baker Creek. I think that's going to be an interesting plant to grow this year. Now I'll go back to things that everybody's heard of. Uh, you can't not hear of it. A lot of people don't grow them because they don't see a lot of utility or use for them. And they are kind of a pain in the butt in some climates, including here, to start and really get up to, uh, to snuff from seed. And it's beets. Plain old you know, red beets, golden beets, white beets, what have you. Well, I grew some beets this year in my aquaponics system, and what I realized was, yeah, I get this big old beet at the end. It's amazing how, how well beetroot does in an aquaponics ebb and flow bed. Like, you get this big, huge golden beet, and it makes a whole meal from one beet. And the golden beets, to me, taste much better than the red beets, and they don't you know, make everything red and what have you, and they have this unique flavor. But then I realized something, like, okay, why are you screwing around in our climate trying to get beets to grow when you need like four or five beets. Because the main thing I grow beets for is the greens. Baby and larger fresh sautéed, they're fantastic. And they, you know, they produce right through the summer. Beets are a terrible plant to try to start in warm weather, but if they're already established when you get to warm weather, they just keep growing. You cut some leaves off, they grow back. You cut some leaves off, they grow back. So what I realized is like, go to the store and look for a package of baby live beets, and then you stick them in the ground. Cut the leaves off that don't look good, maybe cut a couple off used for cooking right away, and they'll start growing because it's alive. It's like putting an onion set in the ground, kind of. And it starts growing. And then by the end of the season, you go from having a little beet to this thing you've cut tons of leaves off of, but now you have a great big giant beet. You can either use or, believe it or not, you can overwinter them usually. And then they'll go to seed next year, and you get an asshole to seed, you can broadcast. So that's one. I don't have a link because just go to your grocery store, and you might have to check it to a couple different grocery stores, but look for a grocery store that sells organic so it hasn't been treated with anything to keep it from growing because that's the exact opposite of what you want. And, you know, they usually sell them about the size of, like, a really big marble or, like, a golf ball size. Those are perfect. You usually get, like, eight of them in a bunch for a couple bucks. And that's plants. And you think about a lot of people going to the, you know, the, the box stores every year in the spring and paying $1.99 to $3 a plant. It's just another way to look at things. 
Now, the next one, I'm probably going to pronounce wrong, but it's a type of zucchini that's not really a type of zucchini. It's, it's, it's pronounced, I'm going to try it, Zucchino Rambacate, okay? also known as trombone zucchini. I've grown this before, I've talked about it before, but it's, it's definitely worth talking about again, and I'm bringing it back. Um, this is a summer-winter squash. I did not misspeak. It's not a summer squash, it's not a winter squash, it's a summer-winter squash. Actually, a lot of winter squashes are summer-winter squashes if you pick them young. This one just is used that way a lot. This looks like and tastes like a zucchini. They grow really long, and then they have a big bulb at the end. But they're a much lighter skin squash than a zucchini. And hence the name trombone or trombuccino is another thing that they'll often be called. Well, the funny thing is, if you let them get really big, they make a fantastic long-term storable winter squash. But if you pick them young, and when I say young, I'm talking two or three times the size of your typical zucchini. You know, I'm talking like a foot long And, you know, not quite big around as your wrist if you're, you know, a full-grown adult male um, at the skinniest part. But maybe the, the, the bulb might be bigger than that, and it kind of extends out and gets bigger as it goes down. But you can let these things grow. They'll grow three foot long into a beautiful winter squash. So you got one plant, two things, right? Um, really, really like these and really recommend you take a look at them. And, you know, my thing is I try to grow a lot of zucchini because we do zucchini noodles, I've never done zucchini noodles out of these. I think I might find them more useful as just to chop up and saute and things like that, but it depends on how big they get. So I'll give you a little bonus here. Regular plain old zucchini. It's a plant that, unless you have a lot of problems with squash bugs, and we do, it's really easy to grow to where you can grow more than you know what to do with. Now, here's here's the thing. I just said All this stuff I just said about Trombuccino zucchini, okay, regular zucchini, if you let it get really big, it basically is a winter squash too. I grew one uh, last year. It was about, it was bigger around than a baseball bat. And it was a good 16 inches long. And I let it sit around like I've done with other squash to see how long it lasts. It lasted months. And eventually I took a julienne peeler to it. We made an ass load of zucchini, angel hair pasta noodles with it. Um, and they tasted just fine. So it could have been used at that point as a winter squash or as a summer squash. Or, or as a winter squash, or, you know, used to make a zucchini noodle type thing out of it. And here's the thing I've, I've realized about zucchini over the years. People say, well, they get big, they get woody and hard. They don't. The seeds get where you don't want to eat them. Well, what winter squash do you eat the seeds in unless you pull them out separately and roast them? So that core just does what squashes do when they get older and more mature. So zucchini, either or, you can do that way. Uh, next, orach. Orach was a plant that I grew all the time in Arlington, Texas. And I don't know why, but when we moved to Arkansas, I stopped growing it. I never started growing it here. It's a member of the Goosefoot family. Uh, so it's the same family that things like lamb's quarters are in. And uh, it's really a fantastic plant. It can handle very cool climates, and it can handle very warm climates. It's a thin leaf. It's not a real juicy leaf, but it's a leaf crop. And... Uh, Baker Creek has a mixed orach that's like the I used to grow these really dark magenta purple leaves and they're just beautiful in salads. They have one that has that and more of a red and a green all mixed together. So those are going to be what I'm growing this year. But orach, easy to grow, fast growing, great big beautiful salad leaves. Good fresh in a salad, good sautéed in a stir fry. If you, it's a again, it's a thin leaf. Think like lamb's quarters. 
It's like, in fact, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's like growing a domesticated lamb's quarter, even though this is a wild seed. Uh, no, almost no real breeding work has been done with Orach. I would imagine even this mixed color, it's just three different wild varieties. And the problem when you get lamb's quarter is if you let it get over a certain size, you still get really little leaves, and then they get mealy and dry, and they just don't have that. You know, the best use of lamb's quarter for a green is when it's only about, you know, 10 inches tall. You cut the whole plant, chop it up, and saute it. They're fantastic that way. When they're bigger, you can pull little leaves off them, but it's just, they don't, so they're like lamb's quarters, except even when they're great big, they still have that great young lamb's quarter taste. And then they have that fantastic color. Seeds, totally different. They're, they're, oh, God, they make me think of a candy, even though they're much smaller, that we used to eat, like a styrofoam. We had these candies in the 80s. I don't know if they still have them anywhere around, but it was like the styrofoam little thing, and they were full of, like, little beads of candy. And it, they kind of look like that. They have, like, this wrapped paper thing over the center seed. Uh, but they're a fantastic, fantastic plant. Next up, one I've talked about on the show, I've even featured as an item of the day on Amazon, Uh, with a seed supply, Bloody Dock, also known as Red Sorrel. This plant is perennial. It will come back over and over again. It will get through all but the harshest winters. Really. I mean, I don't mean as a perennial. I mean alive. I still have some of it growing that was unprotected, even with four days in a row of temperatures below freezing and lows down to 14 degrees. And even if you, even if it, the top dies back in your harsh winters, The crown stays alive underground, and boom, 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 it comes back. In England, it is considered a noxious weed. It is a beautiful, edible plant, and they consider it a noxious weed. This is something I want to grow. I want something that grows so badass that other people call it a weed, especially when it makes good food. It is beautiful. It is used by gourmet cooks as part of their presentation With like one of those plates where you like you you look at it and you don't want to start eating because you're going to mess it up. It's just a gorgeous looking plant. It has a lemony sorrel like taste. It's good cooked. It's good raw. The bigger the leaves get, the more they need to be cooked to be good. The young leaves mixed in a salad are just beautiful. They change the whole look and feel of the salad. Um, incredible taste and perennial. And propagation is best through division. So when you get a really big one, you can just basically dig it up and pull it, pull it in half and replant it. And even if it looks sad, it'll start growing back and it'll, it'll, it'll self-propagate. You can propagate it through division, and it's really easy to grow. It looks good, and it tastes great. And it will, it will be one of the last things you'll lose in the year to cold. And it will be one of the first things that comes back. And it, works, it makes a good water plant, too. It grows in aquatic bog-like conditions as well. And that's how I originally found it, researching plants for edge bog-edge uh, ecosystems. Next up, another plant used to grow. Don't grow it anymore. Self-reseeds like crazy. P became basically perennial through self-reseeding in Texas, in, in Zone 7A. Um, New Zealand spinach, also in some places called Wario Greens. There's another spinach substitute. I don't like it raw, but it makes a fantastic cooked green. And then there's a weird thing about it. I say I don't like it wrong, raw, but if you have some and you're making a salad with a bunch of other greens and you get a good handful of them and you chop them up and you mix it in, all of a sudden it's great. It would be something I would never make a salad based on it, but added to a salad, it's fantastic, really easy to grow. And my understanding is down to zone six with mulching where it was the year before In general, self-reseeding is almost guaranteed. And not only did I get self-reseeding where I planted it 
So when I planted it my first year, I planted this one little corner of one of my garden beds with it. And then later that next year, I like it was growing by my pool. It was growing up underneath my deck. It just and I'm not sure how how those seeds were able to spread so well because they're a fairly large seed, and they're a little bit burr like, but not really. So I can't see them like attaching to people's pants or whatever. But somehow, you know, whether it was chipmunks or whatever, they pretty much ended up all over the place. And that brings me to my last one, another one I've kind of missed growing. Awesome for a green, awesome for an herb, awesome for saving seed, and awesome for self-reseeding. It's an amaranth, but it's a specific variety of amaranth. It's called Hopi Red or Hopi Red Dye Amaranth. I have videos of me showing you how to collect seed out of this. And, like, you know, you take enough seed out of one plant, and you got enough seed for the rest of your life. It does self-reseed like crazy, almost growing like a weed. The leaves are a just magenta, gorgeous red early in the year. Beautiful in stir-fries, beautiful in salads, incredibly nutritious as a vegetable amaranth. Seeds, like any amaranth, edible and awesome. One of the few things that's, you know, basically a complete protein out of the plant world. But they just don't produce the quantity of seed head and the, 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 the size of seed head to really be a good grain variety. You can do it, but... Better used as a stretcher, like once you have a bunch of seed more than you need, you might add it into a salad as a crunch. It's like this little thing going on there, or into a bread, or into a pancake, or something like that. You know, at the you know quarter cup level or something like that. By the way, lamb's quarter seed is awesome that way too. Big protein boost, little nutty flavor boost, and you really kind of don't even know it's there. Good because good in batters too, believe it or not. Like if you're battering fish. Uh, especially if you're trying to do like a low-carb battery, something like an almond meal, uh, and then that mixed in with it, adding more crunch. Just another thing to look at. So Hobie Red Dye Amaranth. Again, I have links to all of these in today's show notes. And, and my hope is today not that everybody's like, well, I'm going to grow everything that Jack's growing. It, it, you know, if you pick two or three of these and give it a try, and you find one home run for your garden you didn't know about, that was worth listening to today's episode. Because, again, guys, we got to eat. And a lot of times I, I, I still get flack, even after almost 10 years now, I get flack from people, oh, you're talking about gardening and food. Well, what do you survive on? Nutrition and calories. That's what you survive on. That's why there's a whole industry making food in cans. Well, I'd rather have food that's just in my yard growing, and that's what this kind of stuff lets you do. Or things where you produce your own food storage to get through that winter till the next growing season. And it be as easy as possible and beautiful and as carefree and as little maintenance as necessary. And a lot of these things today, that's what they do for you. So I hope you enjoyed today's show and all of these great varieties that you can grow. With that, if you want to help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do, one of the things you can consider doing is doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll find all my reviews on Amazon. You'll find all of the things that we're, you know, we're reporting on. And one of the things you need to know is in all my reviews, I think there's two out of well over a hundred that I don't personally own. There are things that people asked about, and I know people that own them, but I think two out of several hundred. Probably, there's probably 250 items reviewed now. So, you know, not, when I say 99% or more of the items that are reviewed are items I personally own, that's true. And I don't think you can find anybody else's reviews of Amazon that they can say that about. And not items that somebody gave me for a review. Items I purchased after researching for my own life, use in my own life, and then comfortably recommend. That's definitely today's item of the day. Today's item of the day is the STX 3000 
Turbo Force Meat Grinder. This thing is amazing. I had my heart set on a Cabela's Carnivore. If you've listened to this show, all these questions about meat grinders, I'm always like, well, if you want the best at a consumer level, it's the Cabela's Carnivore, which is really like a borderline commercial grinder. But like 500 bucks for a meat grinder that I'm going to use to grind two or three deer or one hog and two deer a year, uh, and then maybe use once or twice a month to grind two, three pounds of meat, four pounds of meat here and there, I can't spend 500 bucks on it. I haven't. I can't do. I I tried. I sat on the Cabela's website and went, well, if I cut down to the half horsepower one, that's not the one I used at Kevin's, but it's probably good enough. Three hundred ninety nine. I can't. And I own the Cabela's vacuum sealer. I still think it's the best commercial vacuum sealer you can get your hands on. I spent big money on that because I got tired of shitty. But I, I I could not for the limited use. I couldn't do it. So I started researching. I found a couple different products, some that I've mentioned. I found this one. I read the reviews. I'm like, this is fantastic. Checked out Fake Spot, B plus, good enough, right? Good enough. What an F. And uh, I looked at the horsepower rating. It's a number 12 grinder, so it's a big grinder. I looked at the fact it comes with three cutting blades instead of one. So you have a, a blade that actually looks like a star, like a, it's like a shiny star. You throw somebody, you stick them in the head with it when you're in the 80s and you thought you were a ninja kid, right? So Usually, grinders come with one of those, and if it ever actually gets dull enough that the wood doesn't do any better, you get sharp, and a lot of times you just buy a new one because they don't they, they last a long time before they get dull, especially since they're right up against that grinder plate, kind of self-sharpening to a degree. It comes with three. Replacements are like 12 to 25 bucks when you and they're an off-the-shelf product. You can buy them for any grinder. They're all the same size. A number 12, you need the number 12 size. But you get three. Four grinding plates, including a wagon wheel for coarse grind, and when I and I've got videos on Facebook, and if you're not on Facebook, you can still look at the videos because they're publicly posted. They're in the the, the the review notes today. 150 bucks. I would say this is the best grinder under 300 dollars on the internet that I'm aware of. It goes through meat fast. The other this weekend, I had a roast from the cow that I bought from down the road, and I looked at it and went, "It's not going to really make a great roast. It just was really lean." And it wasn't really a prime cut roast. I'm not even sure where it came from. It was like one like the butcher's like, shit, we'll just call this a roast and wrap it up. And I looked at it and went, I don't really want to make that into a pot roast because it's not going to fat in it. And I don't want to make that into a roast beef because I just don't think it's going to make a good quality roast beef. I like strips. So I cut it up in cubes, threw it in a bowl, threw it in a freezer, and got some uh, country-style pork ribs, lots of fat on them, cut those up, and had about five pounds of meat between the two of it. Threw that in the freezer I put five th pounds of meat through this thing in about three minutes without going fast. I mean, it was, I wasn't even pushing the plungers. I was dropping the cubes and it was blowing out the other side. I made chili meat with that wagon wheel plate. Fantastic, fantastic chili. Um, I had an old grinder. It went away, kind of died. It, it, it served us over 10 years. So it was okay for it to go to grinder heaven. But I didn't use it much because cleaning it's a pain in the ass. This thing comes apart. It cleans beautifully. I have, I have a video that I show where I've taken it apart to clean it. It's you, know, you almost can clean it with your hands. You know, you rinse it off with hot water and soap. Just and it'll, all all the parts that you would need to clean like that are dishwasher safe. You just throw them in the dishwasher if you want to. Um, it's fantastic. So if you need a grinder, I don't have another recommendation anymore unless you want to go under a hundred dollars. And then get in touch with me and I'll tell you what I would buy. But if you want to, you know, you're spending hundred to two hundred bucks. Don't even look at anything else. STX three thousand Turbo Force. Freaking outstanding. So check it out at tspaz.com, and you can always help support us.
by doing your shopping on tspaz.com where you help us out no matter what you buy. Check out those reviews of Amazon products and everything else there. Next up, finally, the song of the day. And I think I'm doing pretty good. I've made a commitment to you guys this year to keep the show under, under 90 minutes. I've done it every day except the first day when I made the commitment. I failed, but it was the Harris thing, so yeah, that's going to happen. Um, but, uh, so we'll definitely come in in time today. Uh, but I have a really great song for you. It's called Fall of the Peacemakers by Molly Hatchett. And, of course, we just wrapped up five John Lennon songs, and John Lennon features very prominently in this song. It's clearly more about him and dedicated to him than, than anybody else. The other people referenced in it are Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy. And Molly Hatchett is a band out of Jacksonville, Florida, Southern rock band. Kind of, don't, don't take this the wrong way. Kind of in the same world as Leonard Skinner. Nothing like Leonard Skinner, but in that category, that classification. Um, and I think John Lennon would have been really shocked that that type of a band, you know, the redneck South, you know, in the best, I consider myself a redneck, so don't get offended or no stupid shit, um, in the best way possible would come to the defense of a, of a long-haired peacenik. But, you know, that's exactly what, and you hear it very clearly, you know, with Imagine and, and other lines. And, and then you hear, you know, uh, the, uh, the king without a sword, which is Martin Luther King, and then the country without a king after he's gone. And the final verse is, is really directly related to John F. Kennedy, and probably because it is most likely the case that the way he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis prevented World War friggin' III. But the overall tone of the song is, why is it that every time someone speaks of peace, they must be attacked? And if you think about it, the, the most violent, from a verbal standpoint, opposition that we tend to hear in the world of politics is when our country wants to blow something up and somebody says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Oh, you stupid commie, peacenik, you know, whatever. I don't even understand that mentality, and I have to admit that I used to be part of it because I was part of the brainwashed society like everybody else. Joined the Army at 17. My, my grandfather was in the Army. My father was in the Army. I have multiple uncles and multiple great uncles that served in different branches of the military. Both my grandfathers are World War II veterans. I have an uncle who's a Vietnam vet, an uncle who's a Korean War vet. My father's a Vietnam War vet. And I honor and respect these men. But what, what I realized is that we're programmed for this belief that we're always right. We're not always right. I did a show a few years ago where I pointed out that I think it's something like from the end of World War II to the year 2014, we dropped a bomb somewhere in the world every year of 56 of those years. 56 of them! Including places like Greece and Guatemala. Yeah. The G countries, they're always out to get you. I mean, there's Germany, but I mean, right, the rest of those Gs, those are dangerous places, Greece and Guatemala. They are out to... I mean, and when someone speaks against war, our entire apparatus of society immediately says you're against the soldier, which is preposterous, and attacks them for being un-American. I would tell you that probably my greatest hero when it comes to being anti-war is the man 
who presided over the greatest army in the history of the modern world, Dwight David Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower did what needed to be done, including sending men to their death in World War II. And from the moment he took the uniform off, he said things like this. I'll give you a few of them. How about this? Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fires, signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. Another quote, probably my favorite, I hate war is only a soldier who has lived it can. Only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. What about the concept of preemptive war? Well, he didn't use the word preemptive, he used preventive. Pretty much the same thing. This is what Eisenhower said about that. When, speak, people, when people speak to you about preventative war, you tell them to go and fight it. After my experience, I have come to hate war. And finally, last but not least, if men can develop weapons that are so terrifying is to make the thought of global war include almost a sentence for suicide, you would think that man's intelligence and his comprehension would also include his ability to find a peaceful solution. Now I want you to think about something. Even if you are a die-hard America type, there's probably not a single one of those that you could object to because you knew who said it. Dwight David Eisenhower. General Dwight David Eisenhower. So why is it that when people who are not Dwight Eisenhower say much the same thing, they're attacked when they're attempting to be the peacemakers? That's really the point of the song. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Oh.
ashes are ashes and dust is dust. 